things, that is, the Sanhedrin, these are the things that Stephen has spoken, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at, together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at his, the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of the Lord. Lord, we, we pray very simply for as much as the vision that Stephen had that we might have, that we might see you in your glory at the right hand of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if it were possible to identify a dominant mood or an emotional posture of the church today, I would describe that as anxious. Anxious. We, as a church, by and large, are an anxious presence in the world. And in part, this is because the world is a place full of anxiety. Anxiety is a persistent fear, uh, an uneasiness, uh, a sense of dread that, that has a way of just sort of seeping in to our lives and our everyday lives and business. Um, it's a sense of impending doom, like something bad's going to happen. I just know it. I don't know what, but I just know something bad is going to happen. Um, and I think many cr churches and many, many individuals, uh, Christians, um, live with a persistent sense of anxiety. We're worried about the future of the church. How will the church survive? There's so much cultural change. How will the church survive? We're worried about raising our kids in the faith. We are worried about the kind of increasingly adversarial posture of the culture towards Christianity. We're worried about the culture's rapidly changing views around things like human sexuality. We're worried about our friends and our families that are deconstructing, right, deconstructing their faith. We're worried about the next election cycle, worried about the next wave of COVID, worried about the next viral video of a black man, being, unarmed black man being killed by a police officer. We're worried about the deepening polarization of the church <laughs> if all these, any of these other worries should happen, right? So we're worried about our worries. And all this makes for a very anxious presence of the church in the world. Now I want you uh, to contrast our anxiety with uh, the story of Stephen's martyrdom. Now, let me read it to you again. Now when the Sanhedrin heard these things Stephen was saying, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. 
And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's death embodies what the rabbi therapist Milton Friedman calls a non-anxious presence. A non-anxious person, according to Friedman, is someone, I'm going to quote him, and (laughs) this is sort of a euphemistic description of who Stephen is, but I think captures some truth. Friedman says a non-anxious person is someone who has clarity about his or her own life goals. Therefore, someone less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional process swirling about them. It's somebody who can separate while they remain connected and therefore can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. Now there's something that is fantastic to the point of almost unbelievable about Stephen's death, right? How could a normal person ever do what he did? uh, Stephen has just finished preaching a very long sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts, uh, which was really a defense of his ministry, but also a burning indictment of the Sanhedrin and the leaders of Israel and their rejection of not just Jesus, but of the law and the prophets. And in their response, it says they become enraged, so enraged, they stop their ears, they grind their teeth, uh, they seize him, and a mob sort of takes over their job. They take him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And yet, through it all, Stephen never loses his composure. He never loses his composure. He never cowers in fear. He never sort of pulls back his message or retracts. He doesn't become angry. He doesn't try to hit back. He doesn't even plead for mercy. He seems lost, almost, in this vision of the, of the glorious Jesus, right? Lost in a vision of God and um, even asks for forgiveness for his enemies as they are killing him. And then in perhaps one of the greatest euphemisms um, for death by mob violence, Luke says that then he went to sleep. <laughs> he went to sleep. I mean, the reality is that Stephen likely dried of, of like, Uh, a brain hemorrhage from head trauma as a large rock struck and cracked open his skull. But according to Luke, he went to sleep. (laughs) And really what this is meant to symbolize is that he died without fear. He died as just like it was like going to sleep. He does it every night. We do it every night. I believe that Luke intends uh, Stephen and his martyrdom to be an image of what it means for the church to be the church in the world. Stephen is a model of the church as a non-anxious presence in the world, and he exhibits a posture of complete trust and confidence in the truth of the gospel, even in the face of opposition, violent opposition. He has utter clarity about who he is, and what he is called to do and to be. And what this gives him is just emotional stability and poise. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we become like this, right? Not just as a church, but as individuals. 
And I want to give you the answer right away. And the answer is very straightforward. We must envision Christ. We must envision Christ. A non-anxious church, a non-anxious person is someone who envisions the reality of the heavenly Christ, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. I think the most remarkable thing about the account of Stephen's martyrdom is his vision, his vision of the ascended Christ. This vision is what sustains him in his witness. This vision is the very thing that we need. We need a vision of the ascended Jesus to sustain us in our life. And it's not just for the big martyrdom moments, right? I mean, I I wager to bet that none of us will have to die for our faith like Stephen does here. (laughs) None of in America, period. But all of us, as I said earlier, have to tie tiny little martyrdoms to ourselves. We must endure every day as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus. And so I think the burning question here for us is, how do you do this? And I want to be very practical. I want to get the practical application point right up front. The first thing we see about who Stephen is and what he does is he is a man of prayer. And that's where envisioning Christ starts. It starts in prayer. Seeing the glory of God starts in prayer. And this is central to the spiritual imagination. Imagination is the heart, at the heart of our spiritual lives. If you are going to discern the presence of God in your life, if you're going to see God working, you have to have an imagination, right? Because God is invisible, right? Jesus is ascended. He's in heaven. He's not right in front of us. The problem is, is that when our lives are overcome with anxiety, and anxiety is simply fear, the kind of bubbling up of fear. When we're overcome with fear and anxiety, the first thing to lose, that we lose in our life, is that our capacity to imagine. We lose imagination. Actually, uh, Friedman, who speaks a lot about the non-anxious presence, he has a whole chapter he calls imaginative gridlock. <laughs> and he says that an anxious system, or anxiety, uh, it creates imaginative gridlock. In other words, we get stuck When you don't have imagination in your life as a Christian, you get stuck. You can't see God. You don't see the reality. You you, you sort of spin in your wheels, can't make decisions, can't move forward, right? And when we lose our imagination, our spiritual imagination, we become the always vulnerable victims of the present moment, right? And so we feel viscerally every disappointment, every stress, all the insults, all the injuries of our environment, they just kind of hit us hard. They hit us hard, and it deepens our anxiety. And then whatever path we're on to deal with that, we just kind of keep going down that path, right? We become more and more angry, more and more enraged that I'm treated the way I am, or the world is the way it is, or I just withdraw more and more, more and more, or I just shut down emotionally, (laughs) right? When we lose our spiritual imagination, we are easily swept up in all the dark emotion of our world, all the outrage, and we easily become trapped uh, within this really narrow horizon of what is possible in our lives and in the world. 
Spiritual imagination as a practice of prayer is our capacity, our spirit-filled capacity to transcend our present moment, to get above things, and to see things from God's reality. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the other thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage. And multiple points in the story of Stephen said he was a man, he was filled with the Spirit. And when you pray, that's how you become filled with the Spirit, right? Spiritual imagination is a work of the Spirit in your own life. And what the Spirit does is he, it's a supernatural thing that he get, lets us get above all the events of our lives. So look, beyond history as it currently exists, the negative aspects of our circumstances, and to see the hopeful possibilities of what God is doing and can do. It's to see things from God's perspective. And if you want to learn how to do this, I think, to cultivate a spiritual imagination, I think it's important to pray the Psalms. It's important for us to pray the Psalms. The Psalms are a clinic for the spiritual imagination. The Psalms are poets. The psalmists are poets, right? They're poets. And part of their job is imagining for us, as they imagine in their own lives, God at work in the world. They're imagining God intervening, God judging, God saving, God comforting. That's why it's so important, I think, to pray daily the Psalms. And David is a great example, right? David in our call to worship. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What shall make me anxious? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? David imagines that God is light. He imagines that God is a stronghold. And that he doesn't have to be anxious. He doesn't have to be fearful. And in fact, his spiritual imagination is so strong that he can even imagine the worst possible scenario of what could happen to him, and he's not overwhelmed. He says, Though an an army encamp around me, or against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war rise against me, I will, not, I will be confident. David's spiritual imagination is so robust and strong that he can work, imagine the worst possible scenario. But it's not because he has a kind of innate poetic sensibility or the special talent that only he as a psalmist has. He has this because of what he sees. He sees God. He sees God. Spiritual imagination for David, it depends entirely upon him seeing God. And this is what he prays in the psalm. One thing, one thing that I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I mean, this is an incredible claim of David. One thing I ask. He asks so many things, but this is the most important thing he asked for. Let me see you, Lord. Let me gaze upon your beauty. And this is precisely the thing that Moses prays when he's in the wilderness and he's trying to lead a hard-hearted people through the wilderness. He doesn't pray, Lord, change their hearts. He might have prayed that, but we don't have a record of that. He doesn't pray, Lord, change my circumstances. Lord, release me from this call. No, he prays, Lord, let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. Because if I can see your glory and if I can see you, I can do anything. I can sustain through anything. Lord, please show me your glory. And that's precisely the pattern here we see with Stephen. He sees God in his glory. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. But, and this is important, what Stephen sees is not a general vision of God. What Stephen sees, 
matters. It makes all the difference. And what he sees is the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed, he gazed and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? What's the significance of this title? Son of Man is the primary messianic title that Jesus applies to himself in the Gospels. Nobody else in the Gospels applies this to himself. In fact, nowhere else in the New Testament, except once in our text, does anybody in a narrative context refer to Jesus with this title. And Stephen's that person. He says, I saw the Son of Man. <laughs> and I think that's significant. Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It was our sacred reading uh, this morning. And the Son of Man is a mysterious and complicated figure in Daniel. At one level, the Son of Man simply just means the human one. And the emphasis is on the Son of Man's humanity. And this, in Daniel especially, is meant to be a contrast to the beastliness, the inhumanity of the nations, which are characterized by beasts. But there's another level of Son of Man, uh, which is way more than simply a human. The Son of Man is like no other human. He's a divinely glorified being. He's depicted as riding on a cloud. He's depicted as ruling over all the nations from heaven. No other human being uh, does this except God. And when Stephen says he saw the Son of Man, here he sees, not saw, but sees the Son of Man standing at the right head of God. What he is doing is he is directly evoking this scene that Daniel captures. But whereas for Daniel it was a prophecy of a future reality, for Stephen it is the reality. It is the reality. Let me read it to you again. Jesus is the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Stephen sees what he sees is not just a future possibility but what is reality. He sees Jesus enthroned in heaven. He sees every tribe, every nation, every language bowing down and worshiping before him. He sees the end of history, which is its consummation, which is Jesus on the throne. What he sees is the true meaning of the ascension, the true theological meaning. See, in the account earlier in, in Acts, you know, Jesus sort of all of a sudden ascends into heaven and disappears through the clouds as the disciples are looking up. But their vision is blocked by the clouds. But what Daniel gives us is a picture of what is happening above the clouds. And what is happening above the clouds is that Jesus is being enthroned. His ascension is his coronation, his enthronement. And Stephen, on his deathbed, is given a vision of this reality. Now, there is the, an above-the-clouds and a below-the-clouds dynamic 
that frames the whole of the church's life and existence in the world. And a spiritual imagination is essential for navigating that dynamic. For a spiritual imagination envisions Christ above the clouds, can see him in his glory, even as we live out the sometimes harsh reality and history below the clouds. Stephen's envisioning of Christ above the clouds is what sustains him in the midst of a terrifying history below the clouds. Jesus is reigning as the Lord, and this reality is a reality to which the church is called in witness. And it's the very thing that Stephen was doing as he was cut down. And yet, that above-the-clouds reality has not quite come below, right? So we live in this tension. And Stephen ends up becoming ensnared by the below-the-clouds reality of human rebellion and rejection of Christ. And it's no accident that the way that Luke describes the response of the Sanhedrin and the mob against him is with animalistic language, right? They gnash their teeth. They cry out in a loud voice. They seize him and drag him out the city, and then they kill him. This should remind us again of the beasts, of the vicious and violent beasts in, in the book of Daniel, right? Now Luke, as a storyteller, does a masterful job of drawing a contrast between the beastly inhumanity of the rulers and the mob and the beautiful humanity of Stephen. And in an earlier verse, before Stephen is to address the, the Sanhedrin, um, Luke records this observation where he says that as they were gazing at Stephen, he had the face like that of an angel. And this isn't to say that he's an angel or he's inhuman, but actually it's, a, it's actually an aspect of like he's, he's so beautiful, like he's so wonderful even in his visage, even the way he looks, that he looks like an angel. Contrast that again to those who kill him. At no point does Stephen lose his humanity, even as he is being viciously attacked and cut down by his enemies. He never reacts with hate. He never fights back. He never responds in kind. And his dying words are simply, Lord, don't hold this against them. Don't hold this against them. He never becomes a victim. He's a martyr. There's a difference between a victim and a martyr. And what this scene should remind us of is Jesus' own death. Nothing more embodies and reveals the moral truth of what it means to be a human being than the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is there, friends, that you see the true essence of what it means to be a human being, morally speaking. One who will die for his enemies. And Luke tells this story, um, and he uses the same imagery to frame Stephen's death as he used to narrate Jesus' own death, right? Stephen sees the Son of Man, right? Or Stephen, rather, is he's tried before the Sanhedrin, Jesus is tried before the Sanhedrin. Jesus, uh, Stephen sees the Son of Man. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. <laughs> Stephen is accused of blasphemy. Jesus is accused of blasphemy. 
Stephen is dragged outside the city to be killed. Jesus is dragged outside the city to be killed. Stephen cries out with a loud voice. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Stephen says, Lord, receive my spirit. Jesus prays, Lord, receive my spirit. Stephen prays, Lord, forgive my enemies. Jesus prays, Lord, forgive my enemies. The parallels are undeniable and deliberate. The church in the world is meant to pattern in its humanity the cruciform humanity of Jesus. Jesus loved his enemies to the point of death, and so the church is called to do likewise. But an anxious church and anxious Christians cannot embody the cruciform humanity of Jesus. They cannot do what Stephen did. They cannot love their enemies. An anxious church is a church that's overcome with fear and worry, and what ends up happening is we mirror back to the world all the world's anxiety. And so we become defensive in our posture. In the name of speaking truth, we become vicious and cruel, or we withdraw. We find safe places, or we use our power. We try to get power to protect ourselves from the world. An anxious church has lost its spiritual imagination and it becomes like the world. It becomes reactive. And when this happens, we're in danger of losing our humanity, (laughs) that heavenly humanity. We're in danger of losing ourselves. A chronically anxious church is a church that has lost touch with its identity in Jesus Christ. A chronically anxious church, a chronically anxious Christian is somebody who has lost touch with their true identity in Jesus Christ. And the only way out of that anxiety is to envision Christ anew. To envision Christ anew, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in heaven. Stephen is a man who knows who he is. As Friedman says, he is a very well-differentiated self. He is a witness to Jesus Christ in word and in deed. He has utter clarity about this fact, which allows him to be unshakable and non-anxious in the face of chaos and emotional turmoil and even vicious opposition. We live in an anxious world. (laughs) We live in an anxious world. It is just awash with dark emotion, with instability, with constant change, with threat around every corner. And it's easy for us as a church, as individuals, just to get swept up, to get swept up in all this anxiety and lose our sense of ourselves to where we don't even know who we are. The only way we will be able to endure is to envision the reality of the Son of Man above the clouds. You will only know yourselves by looking to Jesus, looking up. Stephen never stopped looking up, even as he was being dragged down. Think about it. He is literally being killed, and he's looking up. And it must be the same for us as the church. Seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. You have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ comes, who is your life, and he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, when we look to the Son of Man, and what we see is we have seen one has been hated and rejected and suffered and died, but has been resurrected and ascended and reigns and triumphed over all. <laughs> and in him we see ourselves, and in him we see our true future. But if we take our eyes off him, <laughs> that's when we lose our sense of selves. There's a wonderful detail of Stephen's vision that I want to close with. It says that Stephen sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It repeats this twice, the narrator and Stephen himself. And this has troubled commentators because normally when we see, think of Jesus' enthronement in heaven, it usually says he's sitting. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And so why is he standing? Why is he standing? I think the reason he's standing is this, is that Yes, he is the glorious Lord who rules over all the nations. He has been enthroned, but he's standing because he sees what's happening to Stephen. And he, it's like he comes close to the window to see him. He's there interceding for him. And he's there ready to receive him and welcome him into his glorious presence. And it is the same for us, friends. Jesus stands, he sees. He sees your life below the clouds, and he is standing, interceding, and he's ready to welcome you into his presence. Amen. Lord, we know that you, you are standing there. You see all that happens in our lives. And you were with us. You were interceding for us. And that you pour out your spirit from heaven to give us power and strength as we seek to be your faithful witnesses below the clouds. I pray, Lord, that you would alleviate the anxiety, that you would calm our hearts, that we could live with the kind of poise and confidence that Stephen lived with which is something that is a true gift of grace, not something we can do on our own, but is a gift that comes from seeing you as the one who triumphs. We pray in your name. Amen.